By now, we've seen how tech has really helped scientists and healthcare workers fight the coronavirus pandemic. From telehealth to IoT to all of the technologies that we're using every day while working from home, tech has played an integral role in our lives. I want to focus today on how AI is helping to fight the coronavirus pandemic. Stick around. Hey everyone, welcome back to Today in Tech. I'm Julia Beauchamp. I'm here with InfoWorld senior writer, Sirdar Yugulalp. And Sirdar, you are sort of our expert on all things AI, and I'm really glad that you could be here to chat with me today. Thank you so glad much. Glad to be here. Glad to be here. So I think we can focus about how AI is helping healthcare workers and scientists fight the pandemic a little bit better now than we could before, just because now we've seen some really practical use cases on how Everything from you know hospitals to pharmaceutical companies have been deploying AI. So I'm curious, why is AI so well suited to respond to these challenges? Well, one of the main things that AI does for us is that it provides automation of processes um, that would normally be very difficult for people to do at scale. Um, when you're looking for a solution to a problem, one of the things AI can do is help you narrow down the possible field of solutions, as well as give you a, a potentially predictive solution or predictive answer. But it's the first of those two that I actually think is most immediately useful. When you have, say, you know, 200,000 reports that you have to sift through, and there may be some useful piece of information in only five of them, and you can develop an AI that would allow you to winnow down the field to just those five, that's a big time saver. And that, too, really points to how not every single problem is immediately solved by AI. I think perhaps on first glance, you can look at it and say, well, it's artificial intelligence. It should be able to do everything for me. But that's not necessarily the case. Mm, not at all. I mean, the whole point of AI is that it's, it's a tool to augment um, existing human function. It's a way to, it's a way to give us um, what the computer can do best so that we can combine it with what a human being can do best. It's not necessarily designed to replace human prediction. It can be used to augment human predictions. And in fact, if you try to use it to replace human prediction wholesale, you often get um, you often get results that are highly inaccurate. And I'm curious too, I mean, it makes sense as you think more about it, that obviously AI is helpful in this instance when scientists and healthcare workers are going through tons and tons and tons of data. And it obviously makes a lot of sense that AI can really speed up the analysis of that data because you don't want one human to get bogged down in this one task when they could be doing other things that perhaps AI is not best suited for. But I'm curious, especially as we think about, and in any circumstances, you know, delays in data reporting or inaccurate data, how can that affect statistical modeling and predictions? Well, it's going to have a huge impact, especially if you don't know what the extent of the missing data is. One of the biggest problems that we've been experiencing with the pandemic right now is a lot of incomplete data or a lot of data that is being deliberately suppressed. For instance, uh, the number of available hospital beds, the number of hospitalizations, um, those kinds of, of suppressions or omissions make any model that depends on them that much less accurate. And it also becomes that much more difficult to figure out just what the degree of error is. So you could well be using a model that no longer has any predictive value at all. So is that a reason why so many of, why predictions have evolved over time, over the course of the pandemic? I mean, I know that, that back in March when 
the CDC and the sort of coronavirus task force, was, task force was assembled here in the United States, there were statistical models saying that there could be upwards, you know, millions and millions of deaths. But obviously, as we've progressed in the past few months, those models have changed. Is that a reason why that could have happened? That's certainly one of the reasons. And it's also because there may well be multiple models that can be used depending on the way that things played out. Um, a model is only as good as what it is designed to predict, and it may be designed to predict something where, which has certain um, unspoken biases in it. it may, for instance, one of the models may have been designed in such a way to assume uh, a degree of a high degree of, of, of explosive contamination, you know, universally, instead of it just being um, spread by super spreaders in a few specific locations under a few specific conditions. So the type of model is going to make a huge difference as well as the data provided to it. But now that we're further along, we have some better idea, although not necessarily a great idea, of how these things are being spread. We can also pick the models that seem to best complement the way things have already been going. And disease modeling is really just one way that AI can play a role in helping understand and also in some ways combat the coronavirus pandemic. So can you tell me some of the ways that scientists and healthcare workers have been using AI in anything from, you know, diagnosis to research? Well, research is certainly one of the big ones. Um, for instance, I, in the, I think in the last talk that I did, I talked about the Kaggle challenge, which was um, basically a, uh, a challenge that was, uh, was provided by the folks at Kaggle to determine the best way to get useful information about COVID-19 research from the stacks and stacks of research that are out there. So instead of having to look for look by hand through all of the papers that are available um, for something that may re be relevant to your specific topic of study, you can type in a couple of keywords and you could get um, the, the research that is most relevant. And this is uh, in a much more sophisticated way than you could if you was just using a search engine. Um, and a number of other projects in this vein have come up since, like AWS has uh, a research paper search system. Um, and there was another one developed by a team at the Kellogg School of Management at Northwestern University so that they could make faster decisions about figuring out uh, which of the treatments that they have information about are more likely to succeed. So that's one way that it's used in research. Um, another way is that it's used, this one is probably the one that everyone thinks of as being the most obvious one, is using it to find new treatments, the antibody uh, treatments, the vaccine treatments, the drug treatments. One of the ways that it works there is by modeling how um, the different treatments can, can bind to and act on the virus itself. Now, with that kind of thing, it's interesting because artificial intelligence machine learning is not necessarily the only way that you can do this computationally. Sometimes you can do this computationally by simply throwing tons and tons of computational power at the problem in parallel. And sometimes you can get results that are as good or better than an AI type model. But the AI models, what they tend to do again is they tend to make it easier to narrow the field so that you can do more targeted research and then where you're not wasting tremendous amounts of computational power and just brute force search. Um, another one that I came across recently is analyzing the x-rays or, or chest scans of patient data to see if they match the symptoms of COVID-19. Um, this was interesting because part of the problem was that in, in, in order to make this work, you have to have data that is correctly labeled. You basically have to have a radiologist, a, a certified radiologist, a trained radiologist looking at this scan and saying, yes, this is from somebody who has had COVID-19. This is somebody who has pneumonia. Um, and then being able to add that to the model. 
without good labeled data, you can't make a model like that work. So the Radiological Society of North America got together something like 600 volunteers to go through and label 10,000 CT scans and 25,000 x-rays to build a database out of that that could be used for further analyses. And that way you could look at, you could look at someone who's had, you know, just a chest scan and you could get an idea of whether or not they had COVID-19 without even any further information. And it's all about teaching the machine to look for these anomalies. And that's why I th what I think as I learn more about AI and I understand more of its practical use cases, it's just really a powerful tool in identifying the ano anomalies amongst, you know, swaths of data that and it's just much more efficient than a human can do. So, you know, the radiologists can do something else. Exactly. They could they can leave their time for more creative work, but there's still this initial outlay of effort that is human effort. And that's no different for COVID-19 research than, it, than it's going to be for any other kind of research. It's just that because the time scale on this has been so compressed and because you know that the, the urgency of the situation is so grand, people have had to drop everything and start to think very quickly about how they can put this stuff together. Normally something like this would have been done over the course of, of several years. You know, if you have a disease that is, that is chronic but manageable in the population that doesn't have explosive growth, um, then you can take your time and you can create a more, uh, you can create a labeled data, data set, uh, you know, and take that much more time to make sure that the data is clean. And now you're trying to do this in a matter of months. That's a huge challenge. I'm wondering too, are these systems that were pretty commonplace as it is in healthcare organizations or pharmaceutical companies, you know, science companies, whatever it is, or is this, are these use cases specific or unique to just COVID-19 research? I think, again, the case is that they are techniques that have been in existence for some time and that have been refined, but are now being refined at a, at a, in a much more compressed time frame. again, you know, because of the urgency of the moment. And that the way that we do that in itself is going to be useful, because if we can figure out how to drop everything, you know, and, and pivot very quickly to this kind of, of uh, you know, model labeling and so on and so forth in a matter of months, you know, when the next outbreak comes along that we're not prepared for, it'll be really useful. But even outside of that, um, it'll still be useful in the future, you know, to have these things and, and to be able to use them in a, in a slightly less urgent time frame. And again, to, to guarantee the quality of the data and to, and to match up the quality of the predictions with the, with, with the actual results that we get. I'm curious too, before I let you go, I think I'm curious a little bit about the concept of deep learning and where that plays in to, I mean, I guess sort of any sort of pandemic research. Can you tell me a little bit about what it is and how it's being utilized here? Generally, when we talk about deep learning, we're talking about a very specific corner of AI and machine learning. You know, AI being the biggest, biggest overall overarching term, um, machine learning being a, a subset of that and deep learning being an even smaller subset of that. The idea is that you have a set of data which you use to create a model. And the model is then used to generate predictions about future behavior, again, based on past behavior. And the issue that I have generally had with using uh, model predictions is that, again, they're only going to be as good as the data that you put into them. They're not magic. They may feel like it because they can, they can give you predictions that are often quite accurate, but they are more accurate um, the narrower the, the scope of the prediction set is, because then you can, you can make sure that when you have a narrower data set and a, and a cleaner data set because of the narrowness, you can guarantee much better results that way. 
So a lot of this, I've, I've always been a little skeptical about what the significance of the predictions can mean. It's, it's, very, it's very useful to be able to say that this unit has a 96% chance of failure within the next 24 hours, or, or this virus will, has like an 85% chance of infecting people who have had these pre-existing conditions. Those are useful things to have. But the downside is that if we end up using those as gospel, as dogma for how things are going to go, if we don't match those aggressively to the actual outcomes and try to figure out, you know, where the model can be improved and also to what degree is it really useful to take this information on face value, that's really what's most important. It's not necessarily about generating more accurate predictions. It's about understanding how those predictions are really supposed to be used. So this is a situation in which AI in this use case is going to hopefully at least be constantly evolving as more information and more data becomes available. Very much so. And it's good that we're targeting some fairly specific use cases, you know, looking, looking for, for instance, for a protein receptor that will bind with this particular, you know, thing on the virus, that kind of situation. That's very narrow and it's very focused and you can get very good results that way. What you do with it outside of that is another story. And that's really where the, where the big challenges are. It's not necessarily being able to come up with a better predictive model for these really specific research tasks. That's actually not that hard, as long as you have good data and you have a good labeling system for it. What's harder is to know what to do with it in the real world. Great. Well, thank you so much, Sardar. I really appreciate you calling in and chatting with me about this. I think it's so interesting to get a more in-depth understanding of just how different technologies are really touching on obviously they're touching on every aspect of our life i think we've all known that for decades at this point but understanding really how these practical use cases are helping our everyday lives and scientists healthcare workers are like you know we're all in this together so i really appreciate you calling in and chatting with me about it glad to be here and thank you all so much for watching this episode of today in tech if you liked this video be sure to give it a thumbs up and subscribe to our channel. Hit the bell icon in the corner so you're notified every single time we post a new video. If you have any questions or comments about AI, especially in regards to a specific use case, fighting the COVID-19 pandemic, please leave them in the comments below. I will get back to you or I'll get back to you on Sertor's behalf. Thank you all so much again for watching and I'll see you next time.